today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Obviously, the story that dominated the news cycle yesterday in uh, television networks, radio, uh, newspaper, well, not all TV networks. There was one that didn't think it was a very big story. I'll let you guess which one that is. But it was a big day in U.S. politics. Paul Manafort, Trump's former campaign manager, was found guilty and is facing prison time. Uh, Trump's former lawyer, fix-it lawyer as he has become known, Michael Cohen, pled guilty to eight different charges, and two of which he implicated the president as the person who was instructing him what to do. Uh, It's a mess. It's a big mess that's going on right now, and uh, we're still sifting through this to try to find out just what the ramifications are going to be. I want to bring Lawrence Martin into the conversation. Lawrence, of course, is a public affairs columnist uh, located in Washington now. He writes for the Globe and Mail, and uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Lawrence, thank you. On a busy day, appreciate you taking some time for us today. Uh, No problem, uh, Bill. Good to talk to you. Well, there's a lot going on yesterday, and I want to get your read on that in a couple of seconds, but I want to also reference your piece in in the Globe and Mail today, and it's, it's about the descent of Rudy Giuliani. Uh, a mirror to all this madness, and and that uh, by pretext, this is a, I guess one of the subplots in all this cast of characters, this this tragedy, the Shakespearean tragedy that's going on. Uh, I know that many people have, have pretty much at this point characterized Giuliani as the jester in this whole enterprise. Yeah, um, he he's really become uh, the butt of jokes uh, down here, Bill, because he's just become uh, uh, Donald Trump's uh, much mocked toady. And, uh, you know, Rudy Giuliani used to be, of course, an American hero after, uh, after the uh, tragedy of 9-11, that apocalypse, and uh, the way he handled that. And, uh, you know, he became everybody's favorite to become president. Uh, and that didn't work out. And uh, since he's gone downhill, he's like, uh, you know, just desperate for attention so much that he decided to become uh, Mr. Trump's lawyer. And it's, and, he's been, and it's been hell for him since. And he's brought on a, a lot of it himself because he's so inarticulate and he's so fumbling and fumbling in his statements. He has to come out and correct himself every second day. And, of course, his latest, uh, his latest one, which caught the headlines, was a statement that the truth isn't the truth. And uh, that seems like to, uh, uh, a saying that certainly uh, encapsulates uh, the uh, Trump administration. But as you point out in the piece, uh, Lawrence, this is a guy uh, who has gone through such a metamorphosis over the last 20 or 30 years. I mean, he, you know, he started off, I guess he really got uh, his claim to fame when he was a district attorney, actually in the same district that, uh, that just uh, convicted uh, uh, Michael Cohen. Uh, and played the charges against him, but he was he was a big shooter there. I mean, he brought down some of the high and mighty from Wall Street, organized crime victims, uh, and that and that's really where he developed his reputation, didn't he? Yeah, and uh, now he's on the other side. Yeah, he went after guys like uh, Milken and, and Boisky, and uh, he was you know he's a former liberal in the past. He was he voted for George McGovern in 1972. Bobby Kennedy was one of his heroes. And uh, he slowly uh, drifted to the right, but was been a reasonable, uh, uh, reasonably moderate, uh, you know, fellow who, you know, who was uh, who was uh, pro-choice and back gun control and back gay rights. And uh, now he's done this uh, amazing flip over just because, you know, he has to uh, suck up to the boss, uh, Donald Trump. And uh, and so his reputation is uh Really, I really, really on the skids, and I, I, I'm sure he wishes that uh, he hadn't gotten in this whole thing, as do so many other people uh, working for Donald Trump. The one exception being, the one exception being Mike Pence, who uh, yeah. rumor has it was dancing in the streets last night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, if He's, things. Uh, 
if things roll out the way some people are anticipating, he may be measuring the drapes at the, in the in, you know the Oval Office in the not too distant future, uh, and 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 that's the other element to this as well. And I, I was just intrigued by the piece by Giuliani because, like I say, this guy uh, has gone from what many people, including people like Oprah and some of the others, said was one of the most principled people in in the United States to basically a guy that'll just you know kiss anybody's uh, you know you know what to get ahead and. Uh, it's it's very untypical for him, but it's the way he is right now. It's what he's evolved into. Yeah, the uh, the, the the superhero has 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 become a subject of uh, of ridicule, and I don't know why. Uh, in fact, uh, Trump uh, keeps him in the job because he can't do it properly. I mean, the guy who's really good at uh, at defending uh, at defending Trump is the uh, the Harvard lawyer. What's his name? Oh, uh, Dershowitz. You know. Dershowitz, Alan Dershowitz, he's uh, really, really articulate. He mounts a terrific defense of uh, of Trump as he did last night when he made a, a point which was uh, relatively valid uh, in a limited sense. In that he was saying, you know, campaign spending violations. Uh, this is what this is all about, basically. And uh, you know, has there ever been an election where there hasn't been uh, campaign spending violations by somebody? It's a technicality, he said. It's like a jaywalking thing. <laughs> and, and he was right in that limited sense, but you know, um, this—it's uh, a lot more sleazy when that when you pay off two women uh, to silence them from speaking out in the middle of a presidential election. Uh, uh, and and had they spoken out, it it, it might have been a serious thing. Well, I mean, let's face it. I mean, the charges that uh, that Cohen coped to yesterday. Uh, is was was is a felony. I mean, you know, according to the criminal code, he was conv- well, he's not been convicted but of, of a felony. And if in fact Trump is a co-conspirator, as as the, the record seems to indicate, then he's a co-conspirator and a felony. So it's a little more than a parking ticket. Mister Dershowitz, I think, is really stretching cred- his credibility when he comes down like that. Yeah. Well, in fact, you know, Trump. Uh, you know, the. Uh, it's it's understood here. Uh, the Justice Department has put out a, an opinion that uh, the president cannot be charged, cannot be indicted. But uh, you know, after he leaves the presidency, uh, he could be charged as uh, in respect to this uh, to this incident. So yeah, it's serious. But it's more serious from the fact that um, you're going to have uh, Cohen and Manafort, but but Cohen for sure. Uh, going to Mueller and talking more about what he knows about Trump, what he knows about Russian connections with Trump. Uh, you're going to have Cohen appearing before congressional committees. You're likely going to have Manafort uh, doing the same type of thing because he wants to get his sentence reduced. These guys know so much, and uh, there is so much more to come out. I mean, this is the tip of the iceberg stuff. And uh, as more stuff comes out, uh, Republicans are going to start... Uh, uh, wanting to leave Donald Trump. I think they're going to for sure lose the House of Representatives in the fall, uh, do badly in that election, scandals will mount, and Republicans will say, hey, we don't want to, uh, we don't want to go with Trump in 2020. We'll get, we'll get killed. And so I think enough of them will turn on him to perhaps defeat him in a uh, vote, an impeachment vote in the Senate, which requires a two-thirds majority. I think people also have to keep in mind 
that uh, th- th- this is not the end. I mean, this is this has nothing to do with the the, the Mueller investigation. Uh, the Cohen uh, convictions, of course, in in Manhattan, uh, were not related at all to the to the to the ongoing Mueller investigation. Uh, so we still don't know what's going on with that. Uh, and the fact that uh, that uh, Cohen's lawyer has said that he'd love to talk to Mueller because he has information about the Russian connection. Is he has information about that Trump Tower meeting that day. Uh, and and on and on it goes, and and for Dershowitz to get up there and last night on national television to say this is the same thing as as a parking ticket, uh, is those are the same people, Lawrence, that we're saying back in '72. Well, come on, it's just a break-in. What's the big deal? You know, there's nothing more to it. You know, move on from there. Well, we found out that there was a lot more to it, and uh, there's an indication from what we heard yesterday that there's probably a lot more to what's going on here too. Well. Um you know, you mentioned Lanny Davis, who is uh, Cohen's uh, lawyer, and uh, what he is uh, suggesting is that um, Cohen uh, has information that uh, that Trump uh, knew about the uh, the Russian hacking uh, of the Democratic Committee before it even happened. Mm-hmm. And if and if that comes out, I mean, that's, talk about collusion. There you go, right? And so that that's the whole point here. As I say, it's like. Uh, what happened yesterday might not be enough to to bring down Trump, but uh, the, the the continuing fallout. I mean, this story has so many legs that, uh, and there's so many other scandals surrounding Trump that I don't think he can. Uh, I don't think he can stop all this. I think his base is going to uh, the hard base is going to stay with him. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned the Fox News last night. Uh, they were saying, "Oh, this is nothing at all," right? <laughs> they were quite. Uh, hilarious and um and they will stick with them and the base will stick with them but that won't be enough that won't be enough what about the rumblings on on capitol hill though i mean as, as you mentioned lawrence you know it's one thing to get up in front of the camera and try to defend the guy and some of the the, the hardliners did that i mean even paul ryan of course the congressional leader uh said well we don't have enough information yet to make any decisions I, these are convictions mr ryan what what are you waiting for you what kind of information do you need so, so those guys aren't going anywhere, as you're right. But there's a number of other people on, on Capitol Hill, both in, in the Senate and in Congress right now, that have got to be wondering, uh, you know, when do we bail on this guy? I mean, you know, when, when does he become the, the guy whose coattails we can ride on? And now all of a sudden it looks like he's going to be a millstone around anybody's re-election chances. And that's when they start uh, deserting the ship, right? When they realize, hey, we can't win with this guy. I mean, they've been sticking with him now because, you know, uh, Trump's big base is what they've got going for them going into these midterms. But uh, after all this stuff comes out, uh, they're going to they're going to start drifting now. Now I I think for sure now they're going to lose their majority. The Republicans are going to lose their majority in the House of Representatives in uh, in the fall. It's the House of Representatives which triggers uh, impeachment hearings. The House of Representatives has to have a majority vote uh, to then send it to the Senate. The House will get a majority vote. Uh, because the Democrats are very likely going to have a, a majority in that chamber come the fall. And then, as I say, you'll need a two-thirds vote in the, in the Senate chamber for impeachment, uh, which would mean you would need about, oh, uh, probably work up about 17 or 18 uh, Republican senators to jump ship. And I think that would uh, happen because, as you say, uh, they think uh, they're, 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 they'll get to thinking, hey, we're not going to be able to win with this guy in uh, in 2020. We'll go with boring old Mike Pence. But uh, that's the political reality. And, and, and again, I know a lot of people are drawing analogies with Watergate, and, and you and I lived through that, Lawrence, and, and covered that story. And, and I, I think there are some parallels here that, that need to be focused on. 
Uh, but one of them was, uh, as we watched that Watergate investigation, the Senate investigation into Watergate, what really turned the tide was when the Republicans on that committee all of a sudden decided, you know, enough is enough. Forget the partisan stuff. We're, we're, we want to get some justice done. People like Lowell Weicker and, and Howard Baker were two of the people on that committee. Uh, and and they, they were t- the, the ones that actually led this. I mean, you, you expected the Democrats to be going after Nixon. But when the Republicans said, look, forget about this, and they started to believe John Dean and some of the other folks, that turned the tide. Are, are we at that tipping point yet here in, in this situation? There, so far, there's only been, you know, a handful of uh, Republicans who have been prepared, uh, guys like John McCain uh, uh, and Jeff Flake, uh, to, to speak out. Um, um, and, and, and but I think uh, with the rumblings from uh, those in the White House uh, today is that uh, is that they they that they are in fact now worried about impeachment. Uh, they are in fact now worried about uh, Republicans uh, leaving leaving the team or leaving Trump, and uh, and therefore um, yeah, it's it's super serious. Trump, by the way, has only uh, issued one tweet so far this morning. Uh, he said uh, that uh, anybody. Uh, Who's who? Who's thinking of hiring lawyer? A lawyer would not be advised to uh, <laughs> to hire Mr. Cohen. Well, no kidding that he would say that. Right? Well, yeah, another great example of Trump's uh, you know development with you know the, the people he's hired and the character of the people. I think uh, they did the tally on this this morning. I, I think it's eight people now in the Trump administration. Uh, this is excluding the ones that have left or been fired. Uh, but eight people now that have been convicted of offenses uh, from either the Trump campaign or administration, uh, which is uh, highly unusual, uh, to say the least, in, in any political administration, especially in the United States. And you got to wonder, I, whatever they're saying in front of the microphones, but what's going on behind closed doors at the White House right now? They've, there's got to be some concern about what's going on in the future of this, because we don't even know what the Mueller investigation has, because they've been tight-lipped about everything. Yeah, uh, you know, Trump, uh, you know, is the guy who wants to drain the swamp. Well, he is a swamp, right? Uh, that, that's uh, the, the, the nature of uh, the group he's got around him and, and, and his own, uh, his own uh, tactics. Mueller, I think the Mueller investigation is uh, certainly not going to come out before the midterm elections. Uh, they've got a lot of work to do. They've got a lot more evidence to gather. As they say, they're going to have guys like Manafort and... Uh, <laughs> And Cohen coming forward, I don't think we'll hear from them until uh, until the end of the year. But uh, but uh, you know, by all appearances, they are gathering uh, a lot of very very uh, damaging uh, information. I mean, this whole incident yesterday, um, the the, the tie-in with the women and the uh, and the hush money payment. Uh, that has nothing to do with Mueller. It's a whole separate thing, but it is very damaging in itself, of course. But now, as I say, Cohen is going to probably, um, according to his lawyer, is going to uh, go to uh, Mueller uh, with a lot of information. Well, his sentencing is not until December, so it's going to be a very active fall season, I guess, uh, up on uh, Capitol Hill to see just who says what and how they respond to it. Lawrence, thanks as always. Great talking with you once again. appreciate the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Have a good day. You too. Lawrence Martin, of course, uh, of course, uh, senior writer with the, the Globe and Mail, who's stationed down in Washington watching all the events that have been happening over the last couple of days. Had a lot of people scratching their heads. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to get into what's going on with uh, international trade, especially between Canada and the United States. The other day we had the discussion about 
the fact that Canada may be getting frozen out of the NAFTA negotiations and, uh, you know, Mexico and the states are coming close to a deal and they're going to strong arm Canada to sign it or else, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I don't know if these two things are tied in, but it sure so- it looks like it to an awful lot of people. The United States uh, Commerce Department announced that they are going to be imposing preliminary anti-dumping duties on large diameter welding pipe from Canada and five other countries. Our uh, partners, by the way, in Santa Enterprise, China, Greece, India, Korea, and Turkey are the other ones uh, that are going to be penalized for this. Uh, is this really just a pressure tactic? Is there something to this? And what are the implications? Let's uh, get Ian Lee into the conversation from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Ian, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. My pleasure, Bill. Are you surprised by this? No, no, there's a real pattern now emerging uh, from the White House, a pattern in their decisions concerning Canada. And whenever we, uh, they make an announcement about Canada, and I'm talking over the last you know, several months, mm-hmm. the news is pretty well always negative. And it's the announcement of yet another tariff or duty or anti-dumping uh, measure uh, taken against a particular product or sector of uh, Canada. Um, and uh, I do think that it's um, it's it's part of a. Uh, I mean, it fits with his agenda to make trade um, uh, one of the most important issues of his administration. It fits with his agenda that other countries around the world, including allies, are cheating. He claims, and so he's being consistent on terms of what he campaigned on. And, and in addition to that, I think it's. Uh, He's doing this very deliberately to put pressure on Canada at NAFTA uh, during, for the NAFTA negotiations because it's very clear from the news coming out of Washington they do not believe that Canada has been willing to uh, uh, compromise and negotiate uh, at the table. And so I think that they're trying to put uh, some uh, pressure on us. Well, and, and he's obviously threatened a number of other things. We already know about the steel and aluminum yes. tariffs. That, that's been in play for some time now. Uh, and, and we've questioned the justification for that, but there it is. And then he's talked about the auto pact. But, uh, but this is rather unique, and, and I'm wondering about this simply because of, of, of the reality here. I, I, and I guess the obvious question that I, I've been trying to get an answer to, Ian, is this legitimate? They're suggesting that we're dumping our, our product in there at, at lower prices, and under, in other words, undermining their market. Yeah. Are, are we? Uh, I, I'll be very honest. I don't know, and I'll, uh, let me explain that um, so your your listeners uh, realize this. There's a tribunal in Ottawa. It's a bureaucratic agency set up by Parliament, and the Americans have their own equivalent agency as do the Europeans. It's staffed with economists mostly, trade economists, highly skilled, highly educated trade economists. And all they do is they crunch, they collect and crunch data. What data? They're looking at the cost of production of the steel in the country or the could be cars or it could be computers or it could be anything they look so they're looking at all kinds of data price data and on that market on that product market and they're trying to determine how much is it costing what's the industry average per pound per ton per kilo per whatever however you measure it per liter and then they're d- using all this data uh, and using, of course, high-speed computers to then compute the average industry cost. Then once you know the average industry cost to produce a pound of steel, a pound of gold, whatever, you can then say, okay, now what are they selling that same product for in other countries when they export it? If you are selling 
uh, below your cost of production, to make it simple, because that's fairly accurate what I'm saying. It's a fairly good generalization. If you, the exporter, Canada selling pipe to the States, are selling it below your cost of production, that is prima facie uh, uh, evidence that you are dumping. And dumping is considered, under the World Trade Organization rules that we've all agreed to, that's considered cheating. If you sell at a loss whereby your and people may say, some listeners say, what, who on earth is crazy enough to do that? Well, there's lots of countries where the producer is owned. It's a government corporation, like in China, and they're, they're subsidizing them because they want to keep people employed. They don't want people out in the streets rioting uh, and yelling at the communist government. So they want to keep the exports going to keep the employment going. And so it's their policy to do that by to make sure that their companies are keeping uh, employing large numbers is make sure they have a competitive advantage by selling below price, below cost, excuse me. And, of course, there's always going to be a buyer. If you, the buyer, can buy it cheap, more cheaply from any, than anybody else, you know, it's like a sale on in any store or at Walmart or at, at, at Amazon. You're going to want to buy the product more cheaply if you can. So, of course, on the buy side, there's an incentive for people to buy from dumpers, but the rules of the game are that if a country is dumping uh, into another country, that second country has the right to put on tariffs equal to the cost of the dumping, which means the amount that they're selling below market. So that's, in, in, in a nutshell, what dumping is. And the U.S. Commerce Administration is asserting, claiming, with a, I presume they have data, I haven't seen their file, uh, but they're claiming that these six countries are selling their product below their cost of production. I'm a little bit skeptical about the, uh, uh, but, <clears throat> uh, the uh, Canadian situation because most companies in Canada are not government corporations. We've only got a few left. Mulroney privatized most of them in the 80s, you know, Petro-Canada and Air Canada mm-hmm. and, and CN and so forth. So although some countries like China do have a huge number, one-third of all their corporations are are government corporations. But in Canada, almost all of them are gone, and private companies don't generally dump because it's stupid to do so. You're not in business to lose money, and if you're selling below the cost of production, you are losing money. And private companies that have to make a profit generally don't do that. It's typically more strongly associated with government corporations. Is this a variation on the theme, the accusation the United States is making anyway, in, of what they tried to do a few months ago to suggest that Canada was allowing cheap Chinese steel in there? In other words, we were accepting it and then dumping it into the U.S. market? Yeah, yeah. I mean, let me just step back for a moment, Bill, because that's a very good point you've made. And I'm not here to defend Trump. I've said over and over, I don't, I don't agree with Trump. I don't uh, like what he's saying, but I'm trying to interpret Trump and exp- understand Trump. Trump, and I followed his campaign from the get-go when he started announced he was a candidate. And I focused only on his economic stuff, because that's the only thing that interests me. I didn't focus on the wall and immigration and that. Not because it's not important, but because that's not what I do. I, I focus on trade and economics and stuff. And, you know, there's a lot of people in the media and, and pundits and so forth saying Trump's this crazy guy. You know, he doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't understand what he even wants. I just don't buy that at all, at all. He has been consistently, consistently consistent <laughs> on the trade file. And his ma- mantra, we know his mantra. It's the world is cheating. Canada's cheating us. Mexico's cheating us. The Germans are cheating us. The French are cheating us. The Chinese are cheating us. They're all cheating again, taking advantage of the good name of the United States. And we're going to stop it. 
and make America great again. Now, you may not agree with that, <laughs> but it's a very clear, consistent message. And how he's doing his tools, because you need tools to do this, just like, you know, a carpenter has tools to, to build a cabinet. His tools are things like uh, uh, imposing levies, tariffs, anti-dumping measures, to, uh, along with other things like cutting down the, the income taxes to bring capital investment into the United States. And he's doing all of this as part of what he calls making America great again. I know he's been mocked by a lot of people, a lot of critics, but, you know, down on Main Street... There's an awful lot of people that this is music to their ears because it's the first time a politician in 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years has been talking and addressing their needs, the working, the member, the needs of people in these working class communities where they've uh, been particularly hard hit. So he does have a clear message, and he is imposing it consistently, and he sees Canada as cheating, and so he's willing to slap us around with uh, tariffs. And uh, we're, we're going to keep getting slapped and get, and, and get hit with more of these until we start to compromise at the negotiating table at NAFTA. Yeah, but uh, again, that's a classic example. And I, I don't disagree with that. You know, your, your ideas and your characterization of what Trump's done, he has been consistent about that, yep. uh, that everybody else is bad and we're good and uh, yep. they're trying to screw us around. Uh, but he's telling people what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. And, uh, but they're buying it hook, line, and sinker. Um, I'll, I'll go a little bit further. Um, I, 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 yes, I agree with what you just said. Normally, and I am, I am a free trader, okay? I really do believe in free trade agreements. I'm, I'm in favor of all free trade agreements. I'm in favor of TPP, CETA, NAFTA, WTO. I, I think they're all fantastic. I really do believe strongly in trade because we know from 300 years of theory and practice and Nobel Prizes that it works. Trade works. It raises the standard of living. The richest countries in the world trade the most. The poorest countries in the world trade the least. The, co- the correlation is just unbelievably clear. Uh, but now here's the but, or uh, what I'm saying. The U.S., because it is the largest economy in the world, it is the world's economic superpower, it can do things that other countries cannot do and get away with it just because they're so big and powerful. If Canada tried to act like the United States, we could, we would be crushed, and because we're small, you know, we're a small country. Even though we're large geographically, we're only uh, a two trillion dollars, which is smaller than the state of California. And so, where I'm going with this is, ironically, when, when a lot of economists say, "Oh, that dumb Trump doesn't understand this is going to blow back in his face," you know, I'm not so sure, because. When you're the biggest guy on the block, or the biggest guy in the country, or the world, you can throw your weight around, and you can, it's unfair. Is it, is it outrageous? Yes, it is. Is it unfair? Yup. Is it unethical? Yup. But can the bully win? Yes. In the world of realpolitik, the bully can pull it off. And what Trump is counting on is the fact that the U.S. is seen by investors around the world as the single most desirable place to invest because you know your money will never be expropriated there it's known around the world you know you're investing in russia they might take you seize your assets because they do it from time to time Mm -hmm. or malaysia or pakistan or saudi arabia or even in china where the government can really uh... beat up on your you the investors the u.s is seen as the safest place in the world for capital and that makes it extremely attractive 
to investors around the world. So what Trump is doing is trying to make it even more attractive to invest in the states, lower the taxes, put lots of tariffs on stuff coming in, and he is trying to get capital to come back to the states, and he doesn't just mean American capital. He wants Canadian capital to move their plants and equipment from Canada to the States and from Germany to the States and from China to the States and from Mexico because he understands that once a company goes in and spends, let's say, $5 billion to build a new plant, a new auto plant, you're not going to change your mind two, two weeks or two months or two years after you do it. That roots you. That fixes you there for the life cycle of the plant, which is typically 25 to 35 years. So if you can get that investment by that company, call whatever company you want to call it. It could be a motorcycle company. It could be an automobile company. It could be a plant uh, that makes food, processed food. doesn't matter. It's capital investment. And once you invest that plant, you're going to be there for a long, long time. And, and so this is part of his master strategy to make America great again. And, of course, it, it, investors want to go where it's the safest and where it's easiest to make money. And so he's been deregulating and reducing the environmental burden and, and reducing the red tape, reducing the taxes. And so he's making it easier and easier to go into the states and invest in the states, but making it more and more difficult to export into the states. And that's part of his Make America Great strategy again. And for those that say, well, look at it, I mean, he's making enemies all over the world. Doesn't that have a negative impact? Uh, money goes where money can make money, doesn't it? I mean, exactly. and, and that's, that's been historically true. Yes. You know, they've invested in, in, well, in the, it, well, when Batista was running Cuba back in the 1950s, yes. there was millions of dollars went in there. They knew the guy was bad, he was yes. corrupt, he was terrible, but they could make a few bucks, and so they went in. Yes, ab- absolutely true. Absolutely true. Capital goes where it's going to feel, where it believes A, it can make money, and B, it's safe. And I mean by safe, it's not going to be expropriated by some tin pot dictator. And so the political risk of the United States is seen as zero. That is to say, there's a zero risk of a government inside the USA expropriating or seizing your, your property. And whereas in lots of other countries, this happens routinely. Look at Putin's Russia. He's expropriated Russian oligarchs. He's expropriated for, uh, uh, foreign investors. And, and that, in the, in the world of capitalism, of investors, wealthy investors, that is that's the world's worst sin, the worst possible sin. And, and so you look at the states, and here's this highly educated economy, you know, where it's unbelievably capitalistic. It's rule of law. <clears throat> Somebody cheats you, you can go to courts. The courts are not corrupt. They're expensive, but they're not corrupt. And, you know, it's just a, it's an ideal place to invest. And, 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 of course, everybody wants to export or sell to the states and increasingly wants to invest in the states. And so all he's trying to do is rejig the equation to make it more attractive to invest in the states than it is to export into the states. That's what he's trying to do, and he's doing it by hook or by crook. And if somebody asked me, is he cheating? Sure he is. <laughs> is he breaking the rules? You bet. <laughs> and he doesn't care, because the people who are all complaining are not Americans, and they don't vote for Donald Trump when he comes up for re-election. And he understands that. He only cares about voters in the states, and even then he only cares about his base. He doesn't care about the people in California, because he knows they'll always vote Democrat, for example. Ian, uh, we're just about out of time here. Thanks, as always, for your perspective on this. We'll uh, see how this unfurls in the next few weeks. Take care. Thank you very much. Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. According to a survey by Desjardins, about one in four Canadians, about 24%, 
admit that they are not in good physical health. I mentioned earlier, I said the other 75 probably just haven't gone near a mirror in the last little while. How can we get back on the right track? I mean, everybody talks about this, not just around New Year's, you know, New Year's resolutions, but they figure, look, i got to get back into shape. Or, you know, hey, i got a big event coming up. I want to be able to fit into that suit or that dress or whatever that it used to fit six months ago. It's, uh, it's not easy. Well, or maybe it is. How complicated can the process actually become? I want to bring uh, Kathleen Trotter into the conversation. Kathleen is a personal trainer. Uh, she's the author of Finding Your Fit, also a columnist and blogger and a Pilates equipment specialist, and I think just the right person to be talking about this. Kathleen, thank you for uh, being on the program. Really appreciate the time today. Oh, it is absolutely my pleasure. I love helping people find their fit because, you know, I think we do make it too complicated. I was listening to your intro, and I think you hit the uh, nail on with the hammer because we get so caught up in other people's story, you know, the perfect diet, what works for our perfect, you know, our favorite celebrity, our friend, our mother, our father. We have to figure out what works for us. We have to build our personal health literacy so we know, you know, what are our triggers? What do we like? What don't we like? What fits in our schedule? What doesn't? What stops um, us from doing that? Because I, 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 one of the stories I hear, and I wanted to get your read on this, I, I've talked to a lot of folks that say, you know what, I tried that. I went to the gym. I even got a personal trainer. It was a pain in the you-know-what quit after about six weeks, just couldn't do it anymore. It was it was gruesome, and I just thought to heck with it. And, and so I, I'm not doing that anymore, and I don't even know what plan B might be. Well, I think there's a number of things, and the main thing is, is we don't set ourselves up for success because we equate getting healthy with being perfect. And what we don't understand is that health is a process, and you're going to fall off the horse. I do, and that's okay. You learn from that fall. You get back on. You course correct as quickly as possible um, and you find what works for you so instead of setting these unrealistic goals and I'm going to go to the gym five days a week and I'm going to work out for two hours a day and I'm going to lose 40 pounds you say I'm going to drink more water I'm going to walk at work at lunch you know I'm going to play sports with my kids uh, perfection is not possible and when we say we're going to be perfect and when we get caught in other people's stories their fitness story right like oh my friend did keto and they lost all this weight or my friend goes to crossfit and he loves it well who cares what your friend did like what works for you so i often tell people first of all uh, with awareness brings choice so you have to journal your habits because until you know what you're doing sort of quote-unquote wrong what's not helping you you can't really change it and we tend to overestimate the healthy choices that we make. You know, we're saying, well, we sleep most of the time, or right? Well, most of the time, but we don't. So journal. And then once you journal, you have data, and you can figure out small steps for success. You know, so don't change everything out once. Figure out one or two habits that you can change that will make a positive upward spiral in your health. That's the, you know, the journal aspect is something I think a lot of people overlook. Uh, and, and those that have had successful uh, enterprises in doing something like this all say that that seems to be one of the consistent things that you absolutely have to do because yeah. you, you tend to forget or maybe you try to, you know, kid yourself or just, a, you know, I, I ate a pretty good lunch today. And I look back and, no, I guess not. Really, I didn't. When I look at the calorie intake or the kind of fat that's in there and, uh, and making healthy choices. And, and, and it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's really us evaluating ourselves, isn't it? For sure. And you don't have to journal for the rest of your life. You know, I tell people, journal for a week, figure out what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong, choices that you want to change, you know, and then, you know, in a couple of weeks, journal again. I think that people get really overwhelmed with the health choices and they're like, oh, my God, I have to journal for the rest of my life. I have to go to the gym for the rest of my life. I have to, you know, I can never eat my favorite food again. I'm like, no, it's about making choices. So, 
you know, for food-wise, maybe you say, I get a treat that I love a couple times a week. But what you don't do is you eat crap that you don't like mindlessly in front of the television, right? So you choose when you're going to have your treats, and you figure out a workout program that works for you. If you love sports, play a sport. You know, if you're really busy with your kids, maybe incorporate your family into it. Um, if you are not a gym person, set up a gym at home. You know, a lot of people think, well, if I don't go to the gym, I can't get healthy. Well, there's tons of stuff you can do in your daily life um, at home. You can get a really great workout at home with some Tabata cardio intervals. So Tabata is 20 seconds of work and 10 seconds of recovery for four minutes. So, you know, you do four or five Tabata sets of squats and lunges and push-ups, jumping jacks. You don't need a gym. You don't need any fancy equipment. It's not expensive. Um, but it's realistic. And that's really the key is you have to make it realistic because consistency is key. It doesn't matter what you do once a month. It matters what you do on a daily basis. Talk to us about uh, the importance and, and, the, and the role that walking can play. Because I think a lot of people figure, I got to get in shape. Well, okay, I got to start running 10K. Or, hey, I got to spend, like you say, two hours in the gym. Uh, and, and I think they tend to overlook the, the, one of the basic things that we do every day anyway, and that's just putting one foot in front of another. Absolutely. Walking contributes to an active lifestyle. You can walk at lunch. It's easy. It's um, Again, it's realistic. It fits into your schedule, and you can make walking a pretty good workout. You can do what's called fartlek intervals, so that's basically unstructured interval training. So you say, okay, that person ahead of me, I'm going to catch up to that person. You walk as fast as you can to that, or you say, I'm going to walk as fast as I can to the stop sign. You know, even if you're out doing errands, you're getting your kids ready for school, um, you're buying school supplies, you say, okay, in the mall, I'm going to speed walk to the next person that has a red dress on or something like that. Um, and you can get your steps, right? And you can say, oh, I have to go to the bathroom. Okay, instead of taking the most direct route, I'm going to do a couple laps around my office. You can take conference calls um, as you walk around. You can get a standing uh, walking desk, um, you know, one of those treadmill desks. There's so many ways that you can fit walking into your life that's really realistic, and it allows for that consistency. Um, because what I always tell my clients is you have to say to yourself that movement is a non-negotiable and then you figure out how to make yourself move. So if you love the gym and you know that you'll go to the gym, great, go to the gym. I love going to the gym. But if you know you won't, then figure out another way. You know, my mom, for example, she loves uh, yoga. So she will, you know, spend two hours out of her day getting to a yoga class, doing it and getting home. I like some of the benefits of yoga, but I'm never going to spend two hours out of my day doing it. So I do like a 20-minute yoga thing a couple times a week at home. You know, so there's lots of apps you can use to do something like yoga at home if you don't want to commit to two hours out of your day. Um, you know, if you want to do squats and lunges, go, but you have a family, go watch your kids as they play soccer. And then on the sidelines, do squats and lunges and planks, like fit it in in the way that you can. What are the, uh, you just mentioned about the uh, using your, your devices, and, and there's so many apps that are available right now. Uh, I think one of the other innovations I think that's helped a lot of people over the last couple of years, especially Kathleen, are, are smartwatches, whether it's a you know, Fitbit or something else. In other words, it's, it's like you can track what you're doing, uh, calculate what you're doing, and, and reward yourself. Say, I, I did 10,000 steps today, and uh, that's, that's, a, that's a threshold that I've crossed. And it, it, you know, when you do that, you set goals and you achieve those goals, it, it makes it a lot easier to start it up again the next day. I completely agree. I think um, goal setting is huge and realistic goal setting is huge. So if you get a benchmark of your steps, let's say, oh, I only walk 5,000, then you can say, okay, for the next week, I'm going to walk 7,000. And then you're going to say 10,000. And then maybe you decide on 11,000. And you can get people involved. So if you're somebody who likes a little bit of competition, you say to everybody in your office, you know, whoever gets um, 
the most amount of steps gets treated to some type of healthy lunch or the person who gets the least amount of steps has to treat everybody in the office to a coffee or whatever it is. You can say to your family, you know, the family member who gets the most amount of steps gets to pick the movie for the family movie night or gets to pick the music on the next car trip. You could say to yourself, you know, every time I get 10,000 steps, I get I put $5 in the piggy bank. And then when I get it to 50 bucks, I get to go buy a new workout shirt or something, right? So you have to, it goes back to what I started the talk with, with the personal literacy. You have to know yourself. And if competition motivates you, you know, compete with yourself. If um, getting your steps motivates you, do that. If going to the gym motivates you, do that. If you need a fitness buddy, get a fitness buddy. So look at your track record and, you know, look in the past, what has worked, what hasn't, and then try to do what's worked and leave what hasn't. You know, if you constantly try to go to the gym and it doesn't work, don't try that anymore. Try something else. If you know in high school you love playing soccer, join a soccer team, right? So look at in the past and see when have you been the most fit and try to do that. So do you, be you, uh, stay in your own fitness lane. I've got a few minutes left, but I wanted to get into this because I think it's an important part that maybe oftentimes uh, those that are of opinion that they want to get in better shape and, and for a you know, healthier person, uh, they f- tend to forget about what they put in their body. Uh, oh, and and we, so you've true. seen all the stories, Kathleen. I mean, you know, we're a fast food society. You don't have time for dinner. you got to take the kids to soccer. you got this, got that. Just so you, you go into the drive through window for something. Uh, and, and, that, and that's obviously part of the problem. And so when you finally see that realization and say, hey, that's, you know, that piece of clothing doesn't fit anyway. I, well, i got to eat celery sticks and carrots, and I just can't no. do that. Well, and not only can't you do that, you shouldn't do that because you need to have healthy fats and you need to have protein to stay satiated. Um, I think a couple things. First of all, sleep is really key if you're working on what you're eating because it balances out your hormones. So if you feel like you're a constant bottomless pit for food, you might not be sleeping enough. Um, That's the first thing. Second of all, if you always feel hungry, you probably are not getting enough healthy fats. So fish, avocado, nuts, and you're probably not getting enough protein. You also could be thirsty, so you want to make sure you're getting enough water. Um, journaling, again, to go back to circle back to what we talked about, so journal and see what your habits are. Um, but also, you know, you sort of said, you used the phrase, don't have time. And I really think not having time is like the equivalent of the dog ate my homework. You know, it's not actually that complicated or and time-consuming to be healthy. You just have to set up systems to save yourself from your lesser self, meaning um, it's easy to be like, well, I have to stop at a drive-through because I'm hungry. If you haven't had a good, like a healthy enough lunch, um, I always have a hard-boiled egg in my bag. I have maybe a, a pepper. I have some almonds. There's really easy foods that you can always have with you, so you don't quote unquote have to grab something unhealthy. Um, and you can always find something. Like I'm in the airport right now, and there was nothing, you know, obviously healthy to buy. So I went and I bought. A salad, but I got them to hold the blue cheese, hold the dressing. I added a chicken breast, and it's going to be a great lunch. I'm really excited for it. So it's, you know, it's mindset, it's, it's isn't it? Way. Yeah, it is mindset. Yeah. We, were, we were talking about I'm this. Really at the, glad you said that. We were talking about this on the radio station the other day. I mean, 20 years ago, we we get in here early in the morning, obviously, to do this show. 20 years ago, uh, you'd go into the newsroom or, or you know, it'd be at the lunchroom and there'd be a box of donuts or a bag of bagels or something like that. And it was coffee and, and one or two of those. Uh, I look at what they bring in nowadays and it's avocados, it's fruit, it's protein yeah. bars. I mean, we are getting smarter to a certain extent. Yeah. Well, I love that what you said is mindset. I think this is a great thing to end off. Um, the segment with because we all need to know ourselves and we have to have a little, I call them an internal hashtag, but you know, a self-talk that helps us stick to our uh, positive, 
a habit, and that is about knowing yourself and knowing your mindset. So you flip it from, you know, I have to eat healthy to I get to eat healthy. Um, or when I want to skip a workout, I say, Kathleen, you're only ever one workout away from a better mood, blah, blah, go, blah, 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 go work out. So I always have things in my head that I can tell myself when I want to make an unhealthy decision. You know, I'll say, Kathleen, pause, halt. Do you really want to do this? With your, will your future self be happier? Um, I've adopted a mindset that I am in control of my choices, and I have all these little phrases ready to go. So when I sort of, I'm like, oh, I kind of want that sugar. I'm like, nope, your future self will not be happy. Um, and the mindset that works for me, the hashtags that work for me, are not going to be what works for you or your colleagues. So again, it goes to that personal literacy, like figure out what mindset and what sort of self-talk will work for you and then use that when you need it. When you are, um, you know, there's a chocolate bar and you're like, oh, I really want it. Then you can say, no, do I really want it? No, I don't. I'm pausing and I know my future self will be happier if I don't have it or whatever you say to yourself. I got about a minute left here. I want to get your comment about fad diets. And you've sort I mean, they're on the internet all the time. Do this for 14 days and you're going to lose 18 pounds and everything's going to be fine. But more often than not, it's, it's okay only at this and deprive yourself of that. Well, the problem is, is that health is not a 14-day process, right? It is a lifelong event. So anything that you do for 14 days has an end date. And health doesn't have an end date unless you die. And nobody, we don't want to die. We want to stay alive, right? So again, I think it goes to the mindset of feeling that there's a privilege to being healthy because if you're being healthy, you're actively choosing to live a healthy lifestyle and that means you're alive. Um, And I think that, you know, sometimes doing the 14-day cleanse can be motivating for some people. It gets them on the right track. But ultimately, after the 14 days, you still have to continue being healthy. You can't go back to McDonald's three days, uh, three days, three times a day. So, you know, if you know yourself and you know that doing a 14-day sort of get on track, no sugar, you know, no alcohol will be helpful, go for it. But don't delude yourself into thinking that once you're done the 14 days, you're going to be fit for the rest of your life. You know, health doesn't happen in one day. It doesn't happen in two days. And it doesn't happen in 14 days. It is a lifelong process, one that we are very privileged to be able to to be part of. Now, you've got a plethora of information. I know you're doing videos now, too. Is there a web page people can go to? Uh, my website is KathleenTrotter.com, and I'm active on Twitter, KTrotterFitness, and my Instagram is KathleenTrotterFitness. And if anybody has any questions, I really encourage them to just reach out. I love talking about this stuff. Excellent. Kathleen, thank you so much for the time today. Oh, really appreciate pleasure. it. Good talking with you today. Kathleen Trotter, of course, personal trainer. Uh, Finding Your Fit is uh, the author of the book. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.